0: From New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Climate crunch. The UN says we have zero years to avoid devastating change. Devastating damage, meanwhile. Wildfires in Greece highlight the impact of the crisis. And passes and protests. France implements tough new vaccine rules. It's Monday. Let's make a move. On this post-Olympics edition of First Move, the medals meted out, the torch extinguished and now the baton passes to Beijing and the winter worries begin. China, of course, hosting The next game's just six months from now, but Tokyo pulling off what many thought impossible, a relatively safe, if highly unusual, summer games, and a phenomenal medal haul as well for Japan by historical standards, and some great fireworks, as you can see there too, and Team team GB punching above its population-adjusted weight. Good work, Team GB, of course, slightly biased there, but... As always, we move on quickly. Meanwhile, the weight of expectation sitting heavily on investors this morning, too, after that strong jobs report pushed markets to records on Friday. Goldman Sachs now expecting three and a half million jobs added back by year end. They're crediting vaccinations and the end of enhanced jobless benefits, too. Other good signs on Friday as well. Strong orders from U.S. factories, which could be a sign that the shortage of parts is easing. And that could then relieve pricing pressures, too. Good news for the Federal Reserve. If so, as it nears its crucial decision on tapering. What about over in Asia? Well, Japan taking a post-Olympics break. That market closed for a holiday. Shanghai, though, rising some 1% after a fresh 9% spike in Chinese producer prices. That rekindling hopes for new monetary easing, which I think accounts for what we've seen in the stock market. Goldman Sachs, meanwhile, cutting its third quarter growth forecast for China due to Delta variant uncertainty. But it did raise its Q4 outlook. Much more on the Mandarin- model later on in the show with Layla Miller of the China Beige Book. For now, let's get to the drivers. No time for delay, no room for excuses. The UN Secretary General summing up a landmark report on the climate crisis. Its conclusions should make everyone sit up. The situation is far worse than we feared. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now. Bill, always fantastic to have you on the show. You know, for me, there's good and bad in this report, though the bad, of course, the devastating impact that we as humans are having on our beautiful Earth. The good of this is it's entirely in our hands if we just own up to it to tackle it.
1: Julia, absolutely right. And and interesting in all the climate modeling that's gotten almost more robust in recent years, the better satellites. They're now factoring in political action or inaction to figure out which scenarios will take us into the worst, most painful futures. But this is the result of 234 scientists from 66 countries spending eight years combing over over 14,000 latest peer-reviewed science. And it, it is unequivocal now. There is zero doubt that it is humanity, mankind's uh, addiction really to fuels that burn that is cranking up the thermostat. They've moved up the possibility now and increased the possibility more than 50% that we will hit that 1.5 degrees Celsius sort of red line the Paris Accords hope to stop, that we'll hit that in the early 2030s. That's a decade sooner than previously thought, Julia.
0: Yeah, and what I actually like about this report, and you're pointing to it as well, is that they, they go through the impact of every one degree in further warming and say, look, these are the kind of consequences that we're going to be looking at. And Bill, you travel all around the world. I know you were in Greenland last week looking at the devastating impact, just a day's worth of melting that you saw there and the impact that that's having. Just give us your sense of what we're seeing and whether you see people's minds changing just in light of the last year and And both the weather that we've seen, but also what lockdown and shutdown meant in terms of regeneration for the environment,
1: too. What makes it so challenging, Julia, is it varies. There will be no sort of Pearl Harbor, no 9-11, where everybody on the planet experiences the same horror at the same time. It's varied in degrees. So in Greenland, they're living in the defrost setting, which is lovely. It's easier to catch fish, make a living. Uh, There's more tourists coming, which is much worse than being on the roast or the based setting in the global south, unfortunately. But all of these things are connected. As you say, enough fresh water melted from the land in Greenland to cover the entire state of Florida in two inches of water in one day. And that that melt is is not stopping. And so part of this report says things like sea level rise are already baked in. But whether it is two meters or 22 meters depends entirely on how fast humankind can change everything about modern life and how we power these lives.
0: Yeah, and we have to make a change now. Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that.
1: Thank you, Julie. All
0: right, one dramatic consequence, as Bill was describing there, extreme weather, and we're seeing it all over the world, including in Greece, where the Prime Minister has thanked the nation's helping fight devastating wildfires there. You're actually looking at pictures from a Russian plane dumping water over a blaze that's ravaging Evia Island. And that's where our Eleni Chokos is. Eleni, talk to us about what you've seen and the conversations that you're having with people there. Yeah, Julia, I mean, look, we arrived in
2: Evia this morning. We've seen a few active fires. It has been devastating and absolutely petrifying. Where we are right now is a region where there's been active fires beyond these trees and we've seen flames that have gone above the trees and it seems that it's under control now. But I just have to show you how the uh, local community have come together to try and ensure that this fire doesn't get out of control because they are both villages surrounding this area. You have locals that have brought water and resources ready to fight the blaze um, And it's been unbelievable to see the assistance. Of course, you've mentioned that uh, International assistance has also arrived 22 countries have sent resources firefighters uh, the likes of uh, Helicopters and aircraft to try and get this blaze under control The locals that I've spoken to say they've never seen anything like this. They are in absolute shock. You have seen devastation of forests. Um, This is what the forest normally looks like. As you can see, it's very lush uh, and green. 450,000 hectares, Julia, has thus far been destroyed in Evia alone. It is the second largest island in Greece in totality since the wildfires started uh, in the country 650 thousand hectares has already been absolutely devastated. Um, this is now the seventh day of wildfires. It is completely out of kilter for this to carry on for so long. It's been compounded by extreme weather. We've seen over 45 degrees Celsius for many days. Um, and of course that has impacted uh, the, the rate at which this has spread. One firefighter said to me that he's been working for 24 hours nonstop and he's, burnt, he's put out many fires in his life. But he's never seen anything to this extent. Here in Evia, it's almost like ground zero, zero, where the wildfires are in Greece. Um, And it's aggressive. It's intense. And, Julia, let me tell you, you know, how many days do we still have to go before they can put this blaze out and under control? No one has an answer.
0: No, and that's the all-important question, Leleni. You know, it's interesting. We've had these conversations with reporters on this show all around Europe in particular over the last several weeks. And we hear the same things, that the shock, the fact that people are saying, look, we've never seen anything like this. Eleni, what do they think caused this? Are they are they making the connection between what we were just talking to, to Bill there, and I'm sure you're probably listening to that too, um, yeah. the impact of climate change and the, the consequences of extreme weather and the, the devastating impact that we're seeing? Do they talk about that? Are they talking Absolutely. about that there? Yeah.
2: yeah. They, they, they absolutely are. Look, the, the temperatures that we're experienced in Greece and all parts of Greece is completely rare. It hasn't been felt in over 30 years. So that has been shocking in itself. And they say that absolutely climate change and the heat has something to do with this. But there have been some suspected cases of arson. Um, however, climate change here, the conversation about climate change is trumping all conversations. There is a fear that this is a, the start of something that is going to continue year in and year out um, and of course you've got to have resources on the ground and of course you've also got to be prepared. There's been lack of water and getting resources to try and put out this blaze, Julia. The heat is not helping. The only good thing is that there is no wind so it's not spreading as fast as it could.
0: Yeah I mean you look for um, the sort of bright spots in it wherever you can but we're just showing pictures actually now in Friday of, of Limni in Greece with people being evacuated too. It's, it's devastating. Eleni, thank you for being there there and uh, bringing that story to us. Eleni Jokos in Greece there. And uh, later on in the show, we'll take you to Iran too to show you further devastating consequences of the climate crisis. For now, we'll move on. Firework finale. The summer games in Tokyo have drawn to a close and the Olympic flame has been doused, as we mentioned. Team USA topping the leaderboard with China set to host the 2022 Winter Olympics in second place. And now, of course... As I've mentioned, the winter worries begin, as David Culver reports.
3: A surge of Chinese pride in Tokyo. China's athletes bringing home the second highest number of gold medals, just narrowly losing to the United States, but setting the world stage for a fierce competition in February's Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. China hoping for a show-stopping repeat of 2008. That was China's ceremonial stepping out onto the world stage, hosting the Summer Olympics in Beijing, and a moment many expected would lead to a further opening up of the country. The games were a mesmerizing production, revealing China's potential to rival the West in both athletic competition and beyond.
4: This competition is going to be one of the central challenges of, uh, of this century.
3: But since 2008, under the ruling Communist Party and its increasingly powerful leader Xi Jinping, the People's Republic has not only seen its economy soar, but also a rapid buildup and flexing of its military and cyber might, making countries like the U.S. increasingly uneasy. In less than six months, the Olympics are set to return to Beijing, and you can expect China to impress once again, starting with its hardware. CNN was recently invited to visit some of the Olympic venues. China building big and fast, well ahead of schedule. Look around, you got the buildings up, the branding's up inside. They're pretty much done. The only thing they're waiting on are the athletes. Dramatic backdrops for the events with sweeping mountain views. Of course, as you look out, the venue is gonna look a bit different come winter. This will all ideally be covered in white. Italian engineers working years in advance to bring the snowy Alps to Asia. So we can control the quality of the snow. And China making a big environmental promise. These will be the first games in which all of the competition venues will be fueled 100% by green energy. We're on top of one of the slopes. As you look out, you can pan across and you see dozens of windmills. Beyond that, solar panels. But there are chilling realities that threaten to overshadow these games. Chinese cities are quickly reimposing targeted lockdowns as the Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads. Extreme containment measures, while seemingly effective, aren't exactly welcoming to the rest of the world.
2: We will continue to press China.
3: China is also facing mounting pressure over the investigation into the origins of the virus, which has claimed more than 4 million lives worldwide. Is and then there are the growing calls for countries to boycott Beijing for alleged human rights abuses, specifically its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. The worsening tensions between China and the West coinciding with an intensified nationalism at home, which begs the question, even with all the expected pageantry and performance in the upcoming Beijing Winter Games, can China change how the world views the emerging superpower?
0: And David joins us now. David, what a fascinating report! I mean, there's so much in there. We could we could spend this whole conversation talking about the fact that it's 100% green energy, which is, I think, a phenomenal move and, and statement by the Chinese here. But unfortunately, I think we have to talk about some of the challenges. Whether it's the the boycotts, the challenge, of course, of COVID, and of course, it explains why they're being so vigilant about rising COVID cases at, at this moment, which is which is also clearly a
3: challenge. You know, Julia, you, you look at this and you're right. There are a lot of positives to point out. But with that, there are negatives that are going to overshadow much of these games. Let me show you just how sensitive it is here. As that report was playing, we balanced it out. We put both sides in there. But this is what you saw here in mainland China. I don't know if you can see that. It says, please stand by. It's a censorship. We get that a lot here. But that shows you just how sensitive some of these issues are. And that's going to play out over the next several months. And it's while they're also dealing with this cluster outbreak that's spread to multiple clusters now. So they're trying to get that under control. And really, when you compare the numbers to the rest of the world and what other countries are seeing with the number of new Delta variant linked cases, China's doing pretty well. But they have this zero tolerance approach, and they are determined to maintain that, even though some experts here have even suggested that perhaps that's not reasonable going forward, especially when you look ahead to the Olympics. Well, that's not going over well. They're standing by that for now. And they've even, Julia, gone to the extent of removing and firing some local officials who have been over certain areas that have had cluster outbreaks.
0: David, what you just captured there, though, was pretty fascinating, sort of taking no risks on what the content of your report was going to look like. And as you said, it was incredibly balanced. And we discussed incredibly balanced in in both regards, just in light of that fact. And we know it's a frequent occurrence and it's been happening for a a very long time. um, Are there going to be spectators invited to to China for these Olympics from from other nations around the world? How, How is that going to be handled?
3: Remains to be seen. It's something that they say they're still working on. They're hoping to make this as close to a normal Olympics as possible. Mm -hmm. But in order to make that happen, it's likely that they're going to have to put folks in quarantine for a good duration. And, And to give you an example of what they're dealing with for the Tokyo Games, the Chinese athletes who have started to come back since late July and are continuing to come back now that the Games have wrapped, they're going right to a centralized quarantine here in Beijing. They will spend 21 days there. And then at the back end of that, after multiple tests, they're able to continue on with their lives within mainland China.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how the athletes feel about this as well. Um, David Culver, as always, phenomenal reporting. Thank you so much. All right, let me bring it to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Taliban have seized at least five provincial capitals in Afghanistan in just a matter of days, according to a local journalist. Afghan officials fear catastrophe with only three weeks left of U.S. air support when all foreign troops are set to withdraw. CNN International Security Editor Nick Payton-Walsh joins me now. Nick, you can bring us up to speed with the latest on what we've seen, particularly over, over the weekend, but can you also answer the question of whether any of this actually is unexpected in light of the the troop withdrawal that we're seeing.
5: I think certainly most analysts were expecting significant Taliban advances, and we are certainly seeing that. The pace at which this has occurred in the last four to five days, I have to say, that staggered me. It's probably the most perilous moment for the US backed Afghan government in the last 20 years. Not really because of the cities themselves that have fallen. Kunduz is the one major one. Some of these have been more uh, remote uh, urban areas, but because of the general idea being held that the Taliban could be kept in rural areas by Afghan security forces and what remains of US air power. The Taliban have proven that false. They're now, it seems today, possibly taken their sixth provincial capital. Ghazni, a very important city, the fight for that clearly raging at the moment and possibly too in Kunduz as well, which they took yesterday. Uh, still, there appear to be Afghan security forces trying to influence that as well. But where does this go next? Well, Certainly these larger cities, Ghazni and Kunduz, are in very inconvenient places around the capital, Kabul. There is a fear, I heard from a senior Afghan security official, that in the remaining 2021 21 days in which the U.S. has said it will use air power to push the Taliban back. Joe Biden did say, President Joe Biden, when he announced the withdrawal, that they would attack those who attacked their allies as the U.S. was withdrawing. The fear is that after those 21 days... What kind of battlefield could we see? Already that U.S. air power is not stopping the last five days of extraordinary uh, Taliban insurgent progress on the ground. So a deeply troubling moment. You might want to take comfort as a critic of how the U.S. has applied itself in Afghanistan in that the inevitable is happening. But frankly, you shouldn't because it is coming at the extraordinary cost of Afghan lives on the ground. A very bleak few months ahead, certainly a very bleak today. And that, of course, comes after decades of conflict for ordinary Afghans. I can't really stress just how perilous this moment is for all that the West has put its resources onto into Afghanistan for, Julia.
0: Yeah, and heartbreaking to watch, Nick. It's a futile question, but I'll ask it incredibly quickly. Does any of what we're seeing here change minds, even if it just means an extension of some kind of aerial support beyond the 21 days?
5: It's possible. Certainly the U.S. have made their job of air support significantly harder by getting out of the main airstrips inside Afghanistan, so they have to do it from bases nearby or in the Middle East. That makes it a lot harder to implement the volume you need to change the battlefield and also to be as pinpoint as you need without U.S. troops on the ground. So, yes, there has to be a swift decision, certainly, by U.S. leaders, but it might be too late to reverse the changes we've seen in the last week. It's simply hard to tell at this stage. Julia? Julia?
0: Great to have you with us. Nick Payton Walsh there in London. Thank you. Canada is allowing fully vaccinated Americans to enter the country again after nearly a year and a half. The US is normally Canada's biggest source of tourism dollars, but the Biden administration has yet to say when or how the US will open its side of the border. Football superstar Lionel Messi bid an emotional farewell Sunday to the only club he's ever played for, the world-famous Barcelona. His next move isn't yet official, but some reports suggest he may be moving on to Paris to continue his career. Aww. OK, still so to come here on First Move, undaunted by Delta. The CEO of China's Beige Book remains optimistic on recovery despite a run of negative headlines. And a super app for Africa goes and began as a motorcycle ride hailing operator, but now it's scaling up we speak to the co-founder about their plans that's all coming up stay with us Welcome back to First Move and we'll call it a Monday mood on Wall Street this morning with blue chips set to pull back from records. Lots of volatility overnight too in the metals markets, in particular gold suffering what's being called a midi flash crash on fears of US central bank tightening to combat inflation. Gold, of course, is seen as an inflation hedge. The precious metal gaining back some ground after falling below $1,700 an ounce is still down around 8% year to date. All majors also looking softer pre market as crude prices pull back near 3%, Brent and US crude falling on concerns that new Chinese COVID restrictions could slow its economic growth. And China's worst COVID outbreak in over a year, just one of the country's economic headwinds, tech crackdowns, a stock sell-off and rising inflation, all contributing to fears of a growth slowdown. In July, factory prices were up 9% compared to a year ago. But despite the headlines, the man running the largest private data collector in China says he remains optimistic about the growth outlook. And that's why he joins us now. Leyland Miller is the CEO of China. China Beige Book. Leyland, always fantastic to have you on the show too. Tell me what your data is seeing. And if you can break it down into the manufacturing sector, the services sector, and then the retail consumer, I would be very grateful.
4: Sure. So from the beginning of the COVID recovery over a year ago, we saw industry leading services, sort of treading water, and and retail, you know, consumption uh, proxy lagging way behind. And people were pretty optimistic because China emerged straight out of the coronavirus recovery pretty well. Uh, but now they turned a little. They turned more negative in recent weeks because the government uh, cut the RR, the reserve requirement ratio, and it looked like they were panicking. Something must be happening. But what we've seen in our data is that manufacturing is still doing pretty well, although it may be plateauing soon. Services actually turned up. You know, retail is is still down a bit. So so the economy itself, despite the fact you've got these nasty Tech sector headlines. You know, you've got these, uh, you know, uh, worries over over uh, you know the Chinese government stimulating. Why are they doing this? The economy has looked pretty good. In July, it actually turned up from June. The big question, of course, is Delta and whether Delta is going to throw everything we're talking about off course.
0: Okay, let's go there then. I'll come back to what you were saying about some of the data because I do think the moment we start to see China cutting reserve requirements or pushing more liquidity into the system, people go, uh oh. Um, there's clearly something that they're fighting here, and they're trying to support growth. Let's talk about Delta though first, because I know you have a, a Facebook tracker to try and analyse sort of what the social media community are, are telling you about what we're seeing in terms of COVID. What's your sense?
4: Uh, well, what we're doing is actually a, a little bit different in that we're tracking it through our corporate networks. Uh, right. But but essentially, what's uh, what, what, what we are doing is, is we're trying to track to see. How much of an impact COVID is really having? You know, Beijing's not known for for releasing uh, bad data or bad news. And so we just want to see whether something may be bumble, you know bubbling under the surface that looks bad. Now we saw we saw a tick up in May, but right before the uh, Guangdong. Uh, you know, shutdown and, and, and little mini panic. And we've seen a tick up several weeks ago before the headlines on this. So, you know, we're watching this. We don't know right now whether this is going to be a minor tick up of a minor shutdown of, of activity or whether it really uh, stops commerce and affects economic activity uh, for the third quarter. August is going to be very important in figuring this out.
0: I mean Goldman Sachs came out overnight and slashed their growth forecast for the third quarter. Actually, they raised their fourth quarter growth estimates and net net relatively unchanged on the year. You're saying it's still too early to see how much of a a negative impact will will take place in the third quarter.
4: Right. I mean a lot of this is perception. So, you know, the dynamic that we saw at the beginning of the of the of the pandemic recovery in in China was in industry leading and 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 everything consumption lagging behind. And there was this idea that oh, just wait, it's right around the corner. You're going to see a consumption uh, consumption surge, a consumer spending surge. We never saw that in our data, so we were never you know bullish about that suddenly ticking up. But we have seen services recover, and we have seen manufacturing continue to do well. So when everyone got more negative after the RR cut, uh, you know our 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 trajectory was still pretty much the same. You're still seeing a recovery. Again, everything comes down to delta though. That that'll be the tell.
0: Yeah, the wild card here. Let's talk about the tech crack tech crackdown because you mentioned it, and I hear different views on on what's actually taking place here. I speak to those in China that say for example, like the private education companies, that private education was getting prohibitively expensive and the Chinese authorities just want to add some degree of regulation to it. Then I speak to others who are saying we're seeing a splintering of capital markets with greater regulation actually on both sides, the U.S. and China, preventing Chinese companies raising money in the United States for for many reasons. Leyland, what's your take on what we're
4: seeing? Well, they can both sort of be correct. Uh, I think what has thrown people off the most is that when there was a crackdown at Ant financial, you could attribute that to, you know, Jack getting his comeuppance or when there was something that happened to uh, to some of the bigger companies, May or 10 cent. Oh, well, they're getting big they're, They needed some antitrust pushback. And then you see DDO. Well, they flaunted the regulators. So there's always a, a, a sub drama that can allows you to tell a different story. But the question is, what's the overarching theme? And I think the overarching theme is from now straight through the party Congress next year, you know, what happens once every five years, it's where uh, the leadership will will solidify Xi Jinping for another five or ten or who knows how many years they're supposed to pick successors. Very politically sensitive time. I think between now and then, there's going to be a lot of things done by the government that show that – sorry, by the party that show that the party cares. The party is there for wealth inequality. It's Mm. there against – It's there against big business. So some of these strings are not connected to each other except on on the top line. They're all pointed in one direction, that is, the party is a friend of the people. And I think we're going to be seeing more of this.
0: Does it limit the growth of some of these Chinese tech startups? Because traditionally they'd come to international markets to get a wider access uh, pool of money, also potentially more money as well than perhaps going to to Hong Kong or the Shanghai Star Market. Does it restrict their growth in any way or does the party solve that problem, too?
4: Well, it depends on how intense the crackdown is. I mean, if, if you're talking about what antitrust regulation is supposed to do, it's supposed to control the power of, of the big national giants so that startups have room to grow in, a, in, in an ecosystem. So mm. theoretically, if done right, this could be good for the tech sector you know but the question is always you know how far are they going to go and is is the goal to, to clip the wings of some of the bigger companies or is it or is it something bigger to show that you know societally the party is in charge not the tech companies it, the message hasn't been crafted and i i don't think they have a singular message yet but that will be more uh, that will that will reflect i think where they're actually going on this a lot better than what we know now
0: Yeah. And in the meantime, for investors, buyer beware. (laughs) Leila Miller, thank you so much for your insights as always. The CEO of China, Beige Book there. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and it's a mixed open for Wall Street after last week's across the board gains tech trying to regain some of the ground it lost Friday as well as bond yields rose off the back of that strong jobs report. Warren Buffett, however, remaining cautious. Berkshire Hathaway earnings over the weekend showing the Oracle of Omaha a net seller of stocks for the third straight quarter, in fact. Major tests to await investors in the days ahead. Key readings on the U.S. consumer and wholesale inflation. Meme madness to popular Reddit stock AMC. The cinema chain gets ready to report results later today. And meme stock market or stock market place Robin Hood higher again in early trade after rallying 56% last week. Its post IPO weakness truly in the rear view mirror, we ask, we do not know. And Bitcoin back above 45,000 once again. The cryptocurrency successfully testing a key technical level. Bitcoin now up more than 55% year to date. Okay, returning now to our top story today, the UN's major report on the climate crisis. More than 200 scientists from 66 countries have worked on it. It cites more than 14,000 pieces of scientific research. And the picture is clear. The world is warming up far faster than we thought. And it's the first time the UN has said it's unequivocal. The crisis is entirely man-made. Fred Plitkin is showing us the dramatic impact we're having on the planet through the prism of a landmark in Iran. Here's his exclusive report.
6: From a lush natural paradise to a dry, salty desert, global warming is literally evaporating what once was the largest lake in the entire Middle East, Lake Ormia, in Iran, the sixth largest salt lake in the world. All around Lake Urmia, you can see the impact of the global climate emergency on the communities here, on the people, their livelihoods, and of course also their future. The authorities tell us today Lake Ormia is less than half the size of what it used to be. The shrinkage is due in part to dam projects around here, but mostly due to years of severe drought as our planet gets hotter. Ahad Amadi was a tourist photographer on the boardwalk in what used to be the beach resort Sharaf Haneh. Believe it or not, this photo was only taken in 1995, when tourists still flocked here, he says. People would come here for swimming and would use the mud for therapeutic purposes. They would stay here for several days, he says. <laughs> The ferry boats many used to cross the lake now lay stranded on the salty crust, slowly rusting away. This Google Maps animation shows just how fast Lake Ormia has shrunk, going from 5,400 square kilometers in size to just 2,500 in about 30 years. Lack of rain and water shortages are a problem all across Iran. Precipitation in Iran is down by more than 50% this year, according to the country's Center for Drought and Crisis Management. Severe lack of water recently led to protests, some violent in the southwest of the country. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei saying he understands the protesters and that their issues must be addressed. Iran's new president saying he has understood the message. The matters have been detected and I assure the people that the solutions have been delineated and we have benefited from the views of experts and scholars and this will urgently be dealt with, he said. At Lake Ormia, water shortage is not the only problem. The dusty, salty ground left behind when the lake receded led to salt storms, causing eye infections and respiratory problems for people around here. The local Environmental Protection Agency planted these bushes, which they say mostly succeeded in stopping the worst effects. As the bushes grow here, they have more leaves, and the moving sand gets trapped inside, he says, so it acts as a trap which keeps the sand underneath it. Iranian authorities say they've made saving Lake Urmia a priority, and that a halt to new dam projects and diverting other water sources towards the lake have at least slowed its decline. But farmer Kumar's Purjebili shows me his main concern. The water he's able to get from his well is very salty, killing off many of the buds on his tomato vines and slowly causing his walnut trees to wither. The day the soil will become unfarmable is not far away, he says. When you water the earth to a depth of 110 centimeters, it infiltrates the soil and the salt will stay there and its level increases every year. And the salt concentration in Lake Ormia is dramatically increasing as the water body shrinks. Microorganisms that flourish in salty water have dyed much of what's left of the lake in a reddish-pink color. The deputy head of this province's Environmental Protection Agency tells me he believes there are now about 6 billion tons of salt around the lake. Still, he says, he's confident they can stop the lake from drying up. Pausing all dam construction projects has been very effective, he says, but some of the rivers that feed the lake were full of sediment, so the water didn't reach all the way to here. We've cleaned up the riverbeds to increase the water inflow. Those measures are making a big difference, the authorities say, but they are also under no illusion. What they urgently need here is more rain to stop Lake Ormia, a natural treasure of this region, from vanishing into thin and salty air. Fred Pleitgen, CNN, Ormia, Iran.
0: It's astonishing images. Okay, coming up after the break, Goosam going places. What began as a simple ride hailing app is now aiming to supersize. All the details, next. Welcome back to first move. Cutting through the chaos of hectic streets, Gozam, the startup that began as a motorbike ride hailing firm, is on the road to becoming an African super app by adding grocery deliveries, financial services, and even digital wallets. Co-founded by entrepreneurs from Nigeria and Switzerland, Gozam operates primarily in French-speaking cities in Western and Central Africa. It has half a million registered users, yet with one estimate suggesting 800 million people in sub-Saharan Africa are still without mobile internet. The digital divide remains a huge challenge for the region. Raphael Dana is co-founder of Gozem and joins us now. Raphael, fantastic to have you on the show. I think one of the things our audience has to understand to start off with is you've only been going for three years. They've been incredibly tough, but also lucrative for online companies such as yourselves. Put your firm into perspective for us. What do you do and what do you offer as of today?
7: Yes, uh, good morning, Julia. Thank you for having good me morning. with you. Uh, yes, so Gozem, uh, we're a super app uh, in in um, West and uh, Central Africa. So what we do is that we're mostly inspired by Grab and Gojek from uh, Southeast Asia. So we have four businesses. We do transport, uh, we do uh, e-commerce, um, we do financing, and we also have a digital wallet. So we've started in, in Togo in uh, 2018. Since then, we've... Uh, We've added uh, Benin and Gabon as countries. This year, we're going to open Cameroon. And by the end of 2022, we would like to be in all the uh, sub-Saharan, French-speaking countries in Africa.
0: That is some incredibly swift expansion across different locations, different parts of Africa. I guess my first question to that would be, are you spreading yourself too thinly, even if you have a model like a Grab, as you said, or a Gojek to, to look at in terms of what they've done?
7: So we're looking at uh, the French speaking sub-Saharan Africa as one big market. It's around mm. 240 million people. It's the same language. Uh, we're, we're having just two currencies, uh, it's the same kind of legal system, and we're solving more or less the same problem. Uh, we have a big market of uh, motorcycle ride-hailing, uh, and also in terms of delivery, in terms of financing, we all, we everywhere have the same needs. But the most important is currently we have mostly no competition to the to this market.
0: So, of the five hundred thousand registered users that I mentioned in the introduction, how many of them are? Using their motorbike ride hailing, for example, versus the proportions of people that are using some of the other businesses that, I, that you said you're looking at, whether it's the use of cars, for example, or delivery, even logistics I know is a plan going forward too.
7: Sure. So the model of the super app is you need to have one activity that bring back the user on a daily repeat. So if you look at WeChat in China, people are using the, the chat and they go every day and then they add yeah. other services. In our case, uh, transportation is the main daily repeat. So transportation is the backbone of our business. Uh, During the COVID, we added uh, the delivery services. Then our driver needed a a cheaper solution to finance their bike. So we've started financing. And since day one, we have a digital wallet that's going to be expanding soon when we're going to be under license.
0: So what you're saying is... Sorry, but...
7: Please. Yeah, but in terms of activity, now it's mostly transportation.
0: Yeah, but that makes sense. To your point, it's allowing you to cross sell, get people the financing access. Perhaps they need to hire a bike or to buy a bike in order to be a driver for you, for example, or those that are already on the platform, then perhaps use the delivery option. One is sort of the foundation and it grows from there.
7: Yeah, I would say it's a virtuous ecosystem because Mm. when you have transport, we have motorcycle, we have tricycle, we have cars. Uh, So people can move uh, people around. But at the same time, we do delivery and it's the same supply. So it's the same drivers are doing this. At the same time, those drivers need a, a cheaper vehicle in terms of financing. So we can provide this as well. And as we're doing financing and we have transaction, we need a wallet. So every business is helping all the other businesses.
0: Can you give us a sense of numbers just in terms of the kind of growth that you're seeing
7: Yes, sure. So right now we have uh, 2,500 drivers uh, operating into our platform. Uh, last month, uh, they made 300,000 trips all over our countries. In terms of financing, we've deployed 400 bikes in July, and that's uh, that's growing. And yeah, we have, 500, as you said, uh, 500,000 registered users, and we have almost like a million app downloads soon. Uh, and yeah, I think in terms of, of GMV, of gross merchandising value, who's the the new real KPI into our business. We are on a 10 million US dollar uh, run rate currently.
0: You know, it's interesting. I can see the um, the allure and the opportunity. I can tell by your accent that I, I don't believe that you were um, born on the African um, continent. But you've got a, a, a subset of people that are increasingly tech savvy, um, optimistic, and uh, innovation startup culture. I think there relatively low levels of banked. Uh, proportion of of other populations. So in terms of the fit here, um, I can see perhaps the allure. Is that why you chose Central and and West Africa to to locate the business?
7: So I think when we come back to the super app model, the less the ecosystem is developed, the better is the opportunity. Mm. As an example, if you want to build a super app in New York City tomorrow, it's impossible. You're going to go in any vertical, you have 10 players with billions of dollars everywhere. You can do one app is going to do everything when you arrive like in our case in west and, and central and more specifically in the francophone africa we can uh our, our user are, are in, in the same experience so they're always happy to try a new service and uh yeah we're, we're, the, the adoption is a is a phenomenal so far
0: gokada for nigeria um vodacom another one that's looking to build a super app what
7: differentiates you so I think in our case it's about transport. So I think uh, GoKada is also about transport. Uh, but I think what we do is that we're building all the vertical and the service services really quickly. Okay, uh, as I said, we're inspired by Grab and Gojek. Those two companies are phenomenal uh, in Southeast Asia. So we have a role model we can really follow. Uh, we have an amazing technology team internally that is, is building everything. So yeah, I think what we want is to really add. All the services really quickly and have a really strong focus on the francophone part, with those 240 million. And then we'll, uh, we'll look at opportunities to extend uh, in other countries around us.
0: And I have 30 seconds left. Raphael, are you in the market for money? Are you raising money to, uh, to afford and finance the expansion?
7: So we've raised $2 million, uh, 12 million US dollars right, uh, so far. Yes. We're closing 5 million now, but uh-huh. we're, we're, we keep on raising. We keep on raising We <laughs> yeah. really big, big, oh, yes. big ambition Thank you for asking <laughs> But so far so good
0: Fantastic Good to hear And I look forward to uh, Hearing more about your progress as, uh, as you continue to expand Raphael, great to have you on the show Thank you, Raphael, good Daniel, Thank, you Thank you very much kind of. Of me. Thank you of course there All right, coming up Something new on the menu in France Citizens and tourists must pass The flash their pass Before biting into their baguettes In a restaurant Details coming up A passport protest. Thousands taken to the streets of Paris for another weekend of demonstrations. Citizens marching against a new health pass needed to get into places like restaurants, cinemas and other public spaces. Those who cannot show proof of vaccination are not allowed to enter. And those new requirements taking effect today. Jim Bitterman joins us now from Paris. Clearly, there are some people there, Jim, who... A disappointed, distressed at the prospect of having to get a vaccine in order to get into these places. But what are the majority of people saying? Because President Macron has said, look, we're trying to keep cases down. We're trying to keep you safe.
8: Well, exactly. And I think that a lot of people understand that completely. Yeah. And they have gotten their COVID passes, their health passes that, in fact, show whether they've been vaccinated or tested negative. We were at a bus terminal this morning. They sent out uh, notices to the passengers along with uh, uh, their tickets and basically said, you've got to have the pass, don't forget that. And so people came pretty well armed. We're at a restaurant here, and like you mentioned, in fact, uh, restaurants, bars and cafe, you've also got to show your pass. But one of the things interesting about this place is that they have a machine. This machine here, you put your pass on this and it reads your pass. It reads the QR code on the pass. And that allows the uh, the personnel here not to be the people that say no. Basically, with the pass, you can uh, the machine tells the person whether or not they they can go in or not. And it's a little less uh, there's a little less argument uh, possible among the customers. Although the manager we talked to her earlier and she said they had lost some business because of this pass, but she doesn't think it's going to be too devastating over the long term. Here's the way she said that people are kind of reacting to it. So people can
2: handle themselves by doing it like a proper adults.
8: <laughs> We're counting on the behavior of everyone. So, I mean, I think over long term, Julia, people are going to get used to carrying around this COVID pass, this health pass that they've got to have. Uh, and as a consequence, it won't be so bad. But right now, of course, it'll be take a little getting used to it. Just started this morning. Julia?
0: Uh, Jim, there were some fabulous outfits going on behind you. I was just distracted by some of the fashion. It's such a joy to be uh, in Paris with you there. But So what we're looking at behind you over your left shoulder <laughs> is actually the scanner, which I think is actually quite fabulous. And I think um, to make things easy, it's quite interesting to hear the owner of a restaurant saying, look, we are going to lose some business, but actually people have to be adults, people have to be grown up, and, and this is the way we all stay safe. The, the potential business loss as a result exactly. of people yeah, not you, coming is what you deal you,
8: with. Well, We've seen a few people turned away, a little disappointed, but yeah. you know, if everybody else is in this game together, I mean, it's like, well, maybe I should have had my health pass with me, you know? It's that kind of a thing. It's, it's you're, you're especially with a machine like this, the onus is not on the personnel, it's more on the government and everyone else, and so the restaurateurs don't feel like they're turning away clients.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want to get into a disagreement with somebody. That's what the sort of point that I was going towards with the with the scanner as well. It's, you know, it's there. You're allowed in or you're yeah. not. Jim, go mm-hmm. get your health pass. So we'll have to bring you a coffee out in the interim. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much Jim, for being there in Paris. Thank you, you. That's it for the show. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow and connect the world with Becky soon.